Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Everybody and welcome back to New Books in Central Asian Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Nick C., the host of the channel. Today we'll be talking with Richard Pomfret about his new book, The Central Asian Economies in the 21st Century, Paving a New Silk Road, published by Princeton University Press in 2019. Richard Pomfret is a professor of economics at the University of Adelaide. In addition to working as an advisor to the Australian government, and international organizations such as the World Bank, the Asian Development Bank, and the United Nations Development Program, he has written extensively in the field of economics with a focus on economic development and and international economics, both in Central Asia and beyond. Richard, welcome to the show. Thanks, Nick. I'm happy to be here and looking forward to talking to you. Yeah, I'm I'm very excited about about this book, and um, so I just kind of want to get right into it. So you've written actually several uh, books previously on the Central Asian economy, especially post-Soviet Central Asian economy, before writing this book. I was wondering if you can tell us about your introduction into Central Asia, um, how you came to study this economy, and what motivated you to write those past works, and and also uh, this this most recent book. Um, I actually starts off a little bit um, idiosyncratic. In the 1980s, I was working with Johns Hopkins University School of Advanced International Studies there. Uh, and they had a big program in Europe that involved traveling to Eastern Europe with some students. And so I was writing on Eastern Europe. And then in 1988-89, I went to the Hopkins campus in Nanjing in China. And uh, I wrote a book on China after that. Uh, fast forward a couple of years, at the end of 1991, the Soviet Union dissolved. Uh, the successor states joined the United Nations, the Central Asian countries, um, joined the Economic Commission for Asia and the Pacific. Uh, and the Economic Commission for Asia and Pacific had no idea what to do with these countries. They, they weren't like India, they weren't like Fiji, they weren't like anything else in the region. So they appointed a regional advisor and somehow they identified me, I think, on the basis that if I'd worked on Eastern Europe, I'd worked on Poland, I'd worked on China, Central Asia was halfway in between, which was not a particularly great argument, but it was really interesting for me because I I was in Central Asia from um, 1993, in other words, right at the beginning of uh, independence. I I worked for about 15 months for the United Nations, traveling between the countries, the five countries, um, advising governments. At the end of that, I published the first book, which came, I wrote in 94, came out in 95. And it was quite successful, um, I think, because it was the only book on Central Asian economies. It's great to have a monopoly. Um, the second book then came because um, now the transition from central planning, the building of nations, it obviously took a few years. I think it took essentially all of it in the 1990s. So in the early 2000s, uh, uh, Princeton came back and said, we need to update this book. And so I wrote the book about you know, how the, the national economies had managed after independence, you're creating uh, market-based economies, creating the nation states, and so on. Uh, then things that 
came out in 2006, clearly as a resource boom was starting to happen, uh, and that dominates Central Asia for 1999 to 2014. It's dominated really by the, the oil and minerals boom. Um, and then more recently, you know, we're looking at, well, what happened after the end of the boom? And that's essentially this, this latest book. It's looking at you know, what's happening to these countries now that the boom is over. You know, we're in a different world um, for, as far as they're concerned. You know, what is happening? It's actually quite good timing in so far as the two largest economies, Uzbekistan and Kazakhstan, uh, had had the same pre- president inherited from the Soviet era. Um, and the presidency changed in Uzbekistan in 2016, in Kazakhstan in 2019. So it's a really good time, I think, to take stock of you know, what's happened after, you know, 30 years after the dissolution of the Soviet Union and you know, what's happening to the economies of Central Asia. Yeah, and I think we'll get into some of those um, those changes. You know, even as you've you've written these books over time, they kind of build on each other. Um, and your discussion, actually, uh, I was thinking while while you were talking, um, I'm curious about about kind of your the difficulties you face in writing these works over the years. So, um, like, if you can compare your most recent work, I'm curious, like, what kind of source materials you have available now as opposed to in the mid 90s like did you find it do you find it easier to write these these books now um is is there more information on these economies available um and i'm just curious if you can kind of compare that process uh from the mid 90s to today absolutely different um when i first uh, got into central asia in december 1992 if i I wanted information on sort of inflation or output. Somebody would come from the statistical office, which was just being established, um, and give me a handwritten piece of paper that said, you know, 29,000 tons of potatoes last month. Um, you know, the statistics were, were really almost non-existent. Everything happened through Moscow. Uh, there was no independent uh, statistical capacity, really, in, in newly independent countries. And... You're building a nation, building the statistical office is not the top priority. So through the 1990s, there's a gradual improvement, a lot of help from international agencies. Uh, since 2000, we have much better statistics. Some of the governments, notably Turkmenistan and Uzbekistan, were secretive about the statistics. Some things, um, gold production in, in Uzbekistan was a state secret, even though it was probably the second largest export. Um, so there were lots of issues like that. I think they've gradually changed in that the government's recognised that having good data is essential for good economic policy making, and that certainly makes that side of doing uh, doing research a lot easier. Um, or, or a lot, you can have more trust in what you're doing. I think so. Yeah, I mean, over the thirty year period, it's like night and day. The statistical sources. For me, one of the biggest issues has been, uh, has been the language issue because uh, going into the region, I thought, well, maybe should I try to improve my Russian as a, a lingua franca. Um, am I going to learn one of the, the local languages? I'm not going to learn Kazakh, Kyrgyz, Uzbek, Turkmen, Tajik. Um, so that's been an ongoing difficulty. What's also changed is I think particularly people say under about 40 today, um, Russia has been superseded considerably um, uh, by English as an international language, which also makes things a, a lot easier. Um, so things have changed greatly in the last 30 years. Yeah, and so I kind of let I kind of want to dive into the uh the book itself now. 
um, which which starts in the 1990s. You know, it, it's it must be interesting to write this kind of book because in, in a way, you know, your your kind of career, it seems, has, has kind of followed, you know, has been marked by by the, these this transition and then um, basically the last 30 years or so of, of post post-Soviet experiences in Central Asia. Um, but, you know, earlier chapters of this book actually focus on, on, on this initial period, which in, in some ways seems really essential for understanding the eventual trajectories of these different national economies. So I'm curious, like, can you fill us in on, on what those early experiences uh, after independence were like and whether or not we can see some similarities between the five five former Soviet republics of Kazakhstan, Kyrgyzstan, Uzbekistan, Tajikistan, and, and Turkmenistan. How are they how are they similar? How are they different? Yeah, Nick, I'm, when I wrote the first book, I mean, a lot of it was this was an exotic area that people didn't really know much about, including myself. Um, so I think that's partly why the first book sold well. Um, they were very similar. They were countries whose place in the Soviet division of labor was producing raw materials, cotton, oil and gas, minerals, and they seemed quite similar. What happened after independence was I think they took very different strategies towards um, creating uh, economic and political systems. They're all super presidential systems. The presidents have a, a, a lot of power. Parliament's been very weak until recently in Kyrgyzstan and still in the other countries. But the economic strategies were really, really different. And the Kyrgyz Republic became a bit of a, a poster boy for you know, IMF World Bank advice on, um, on economic reforms. At the other extreme, Turkmenistan, the, uh, President Niazov just basically took over the Soviet system of um, focusing on producing gas and cotton, uh, and he kept the rents for himself. In between the two big countries, um, Kazakhstan seemed like it was a much more liberal regime than, than the more statist regime in, um, in Uzbekistan. But then Kazakhstan became characterized by a lot of, of very you know, high-level um, corruption and uh, uh, that, that seemed to be taking it away from a good path. And Tajikistan, as distinctively, were, had a civil war for pretty much all of the 1990s. Peace was in 1997. Um, as recently as 2001, when I was in Dushanbe, you, you couldn't go more than about five kilometers from the city without an armed escort. It was considered so dangerous. Um, so they had very different strategies in the 1990s, whose footprint, I think, is still there today, um, because once you establish the system, it doesn't change very quickly. One of the things people were predicting in the 1990s was that these five different strategies would be almost a natural experiment to see was rapid reform better, was um, gradual reform better. In fact, it did not, and I was one of the people that said that, but it didn't work out like that because of the resource boom in the first decade of this century. You know, the countries that did best were the ones that had oil and gas, Kazakhstan and uh, Turkmenistan. Um, so we've had this mixture of different strategies for tra- transition from central planning on the one hand, and we have these different resource endowments. Did you have oil and gas or did you not? Um, and it's a mixture that have really determined how the countries evolved. Today, they, there are still similarities, obviously, but they're very different. So I find the last book was the hardest to write in the sense it's we're really in a position you almost need five separate books on the five countries because they're becoming much more distinct than they were in 1992. Yeah, and and I, I was curious because in in the book you talk about something, and I think you're trying to argue against this a, a, 
the, the term was a resource curse or a resource curse outcome. Um, and could you explain that, that a little bit and, and whether is, is like, I'm curious what does Uzbek? What can Uzbekistan and Kazakhstan and and maybe Turkmenistan too tell us specifically? Because they have these resources, because they've benefited from this economic boom, does that tell? Like, do economists pull lessons from Central Asia and 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 apply them elsewhere, or is it generally assumed that this is a very specific region uh, with its own in- intricacies? Yeah, I, I think the the, the kind of interesting in this resource curse idea, it really comes from the first oil crisis in the 1970s when some countries look like, you know, it's a huge um, increase in the price of oil. Some countries' oil exports increase very rapidly. Um, Nigeria, Angola were countries mentioned. And yet, you know, their economic development was not great. You know, was it because they focused on oil and the rest of the economy you know, suffered because of no incentive to do anything else? Or... Probably more importantly, was it because things like oil or, or diamonds, uh, you know, resources where the an elite or, or, or somebody people could gain control over the revenues from those um, distorted the, the country's political and therefore economic development. So it's this idea that the resources could didn't necessarily lead to prosperity. There were always exceptions. There were resource-rich countries that did very well. Um, You know, Norway in Europe, Botswana in Africa, Malaysia in Asia. Uh, So it's always a a little bit mixed. When we look at Central Asia, um, there is a resource curse. I think we see clearly in Turkmenistan in that um, President Niazov, Turkmenbashi, was able to gain control of the the rents from the natural gas, um, use that to have a very repressive regime. and essentially the country's per capita income looked pretty pretty good, but most of it was going to one person, which is not so good. On the other hand, a real test case on the resource curse was Kazakhstan, that I think had good reforms, but then there were, there were a lot of cases of um, accusations of high-level corruption or cases in the United States. Your mobile executive got sentenced to, to jail for um, not reporting his um, illegal revenue income for income tax. Um, you know, cases in, in Belgium, in Switzerland. It looked as though um, Kazakhstan may be going a, a really bad way of just a, a tin pot oil dictatorship. I think it, there, are, there are other signs. If you go to Kazakhstan, it, it obviously is booming. The, uh, the benefits of the oil boom have been spread a, a bit more broadly. So I think we're, we're really here at the end of Nazarbayev's rule. We're really at a, a turning point. I mean, is Kazakhstan going to develop into an upper middle class country with um, good institutions or will the people who benefited from the oil boom are they going to be really concerned about protecting their um, what we might think of as ill-gotten gains or protecting their wealth and and stymieing any a, any improvement in the the economic system so i think the resource curse to, to answer your question a bit more briefly it helps us to focus that just having an oil well they make somebody rich, but it's not necessarily good for the country. You have to use the revenues from the oil well. You have to create good institutions. You have to try to limit some of the potential bad effects as people strive to you know, benefit from, from the rents. And I'm curious um, in your research about kind of, so so we know about gas and oil and, and these are, you know, natural resources that are mostly being exported as far as I understand. But um, 
you know, a lot of these countries also had like heavy agricultural uh, sectors uh, during the Soviet period. And I'm curious, like, is there um, is there a correlation? Like, have 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 these uh, agricultural sectors in in Uzbekistan or Tajikistan or actually any of these republics? Um, do they come close to their uh, Soviet Soviet era um, production levels? Do they succeed them, or um, or or have these independent countries like done a better job at, at kind of uh, diversifying the agricultural sector? Um, does your research indicate any anything on on that question? I think agriculture is important. It, it's very very hard to generalize, which is a bit of an economist cop out. Um, on the one hand, this on the one hand that. Um, it depends a bit. Um, Uzbekistan, I think, did a reasonable job of maintaining the, the cotton sector. It's a major cotton exporter. Um, keeping control of cotton was important for the Karimov regime because they controlled the gins, they controlled the revenues, and uh, and that was a major uh, support for their gradual reforms. Um, if we look at agriculture in northern Kazakhstan, the wheat agriculture, the grain agriculture in northern Kazakhstan, and that, that has continued to be a substantial um, export activity. Some problems getting the exports to market because um, you have to go through Russia or across the Caspian and so on. But they've done quite well. Um, other uh, regions, I think um, Kyrgyzstan and Tajikistan have remained more rural. They're clearly the poorest countries in the region. They're not pr- creating enough jobs. So the main phenomenon in those two countries has been you know, huge amounts of migrant labor going to work in in Russia and Kazakhstan during the oil boom, uh, which is now a problem as the boom has ended. Um, In about 2014, Kyrgyzstan and Tajikistan had the first and the third highest ratio of remittances to GDP of any country in the world. So this was, it affected the country in in different ways, I think is is the answer. We see more recently um, efficient agricultural exports starting to develop. Um, In Uzbekistan, there was, in the Soviet era, in particularly in winter, Uzbekistan would supply you know, fruits and vegetables to Siberia. That trade got choked off in the 1990s because it was just um, there's too many disruptions of, of the transport networks through through Kazakhstan. They are being reestablished. I mean, it's become fruit and vegetables has become again a significant export from Uzbekistan. So I think there are these positive signs. And one of the problems in economics for me is that people say, well, what's going to happen? After the end of the Soviet Union, it takes 30 years to kind of get the answer, really, that these sectors decline. And then some of them, you know, obvious as potential for fruit and vegetables. To, they grow well in Uzbekistan. There's obviously a market in, in, in Siberia. How do you reestablish those and, and what things should be there? You know, you, 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 600 years ago, uh, melons were transported from what's now Tashkent to Damascus. You know, there's obviously the potential for these things if you can. Um, get the transport costs right and get the production right. Well, I'm glad you, you also brought up um, the kind of issue of, of uh, the de- devaluing of the ruble in 2014 and how that, um, how that if, you know, you, you mentioned that it affected the migration uh, or, or rather um, had, a, had an, I guess, negative impact on, on, levels of, of migrant labor coming from Kyrgyzstan, Tajikistan, and maybe other places. I'm curious, like, uh, like what, what other effects have had, have the, uh, the, the decline of the ruble had on Central Asian economies? And does this tell us anything about how 
like still linked these these economies are um, in relation to Russia, be it be it um, via labor, um, supply and demand of labor, be it trade. Um, I know that there are economic unions between these different countries. Um, and and how does how do you see Central Asian states uh, dealing with this with this issue? Um, yeah, I mean Russia remains important for the for the region. I mean clearly from from geography, uh, you know the rail the lines kind of um, the time of independence it all went north to Russia. Um, remittances, as I've just mentioned, tremendously important for um, Tajikistan and Kyrgyzstan during the, the oil boom uh, and. You know, the the end of a boom, the depreciation of a ruble, you know, clearly ne- necessitated a you know, major rethink uh, of uh, development strategy in those countries. It's not just um, the energy exporters, Kazakhstan and Turkmenistan, that had to sort of face up to the the end of a boom in in 2014. The big trend, though, um, since the turn of a century, especially um, since 2001, has been the rising importance of China. Um, so, whereas up and the end of the 20th century, Russia was clearly the dominant um, trading partner, political influence in the region. Um, I would say since 2000, the growing importance of China. Uh, today, yeah, I'd, you could talk about roughly equal balance in, in, in a sense, in that Russia is still slightly, I think, a larger trading partner, but China a source of, um, of investment. The um, com- development of the land bridge, the rail link between China and Europe through Kazakhstan has been tremendously important since um, about 2011. Um, so China's becoming much more important. Um, Russia remains important. Um, the Eurasian Economic Union was in was Russia's um, response. I think um, you know, Putin, President Putin clearly, I think, um, became uh, more concerned about, the, uh, about restoring the, uh, the former Soviet economic space in the late 2000s. Yeah, the um, customs union agreement with Belarus and, and Kazakhstan turned into the Eurasian Economic Union in 2015. Um, Kyrgyzstan, Armenia joins. Yeah, clearly seen as a, a way to increase Russia's influence. Um, hasn't worked too well, partly because it coincided in 2014 with the events in, in Ukraine, which um, caused a, a major, major um, rethink for, for Kazakhstan, whose position is not dissimilar to, to Ukraine in that they gave up um, nuclear weapons in return for guarantees of territorial integrity, they, which didn't seem to help Ukraine much. Um, they have a large Russian-speaking um, population close to the Siberian border, and there, there is no natural geographical border. So for Kazakhstan, it should always be uh, the closest to Russia, both geographically and politically, of the five countries. I mean, except to really try to think about... Um, what is known there as the multi-vector diplomacy about um, diversifying uh, links with other countries. So, yes, if, in answer to your question, Russia re- remains an important influence. It's an important market. Uh, it's the, the it's important um, strategic player in the region. But clearly China has become much more important um, in the last t- 20 years. And we're still not sure our... our um, are Russia and China are they they natural are they competitors or are they collaborators in the region? So that's, that's I think remains an unanswered question, really. Yeah, and I'm curious if you could elaborate a little bit on. on I, I know China has has kind of invested a lot in the region and and is definitely interested in in 
I guess, building or, or, or transforming infrastructure uh, for, for transportation in the region. Um, what, are, what other activities uh, do we see Central in Asian invest, or sorry, Chinese investment in Central Asia trying to achieve? And um, how do the other big powers, the United States obviously has an interest in, in Central Asia, as does the European Union. How have they tried to, are they trying to compete with Chinese influence? Have they kind of accepted um, that, that, you know, there's basically a little option to, 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 to combat Chinese influence in the region or, because um, this is all kind of new to me, but I'm, I'm curious as somebody who's more more of an astute uh, observer of these these uh, trends, what what you thought about that? Yeah, I mean, I Nick, to me, I, I mean, part of this is a a, a reversal of an, the artificial split between um, Central Asia and China that that they exist at least since the 1960s with a Sino-Soviet split. I mean, this was a border that was absolute; nothing happened. And it was right at the end of the Gorbachev era that the the first rail link between um, Central Asia and China was opened. So there's, there's a lot of suspicion during the 1990s. So the border wasn't even fully agreed. So a lot of the initial steps were trying to um, border delimitation that led to a process that you know the Shanghai Forum that became the, um, the Shanghai Cooperation Organization. So very. Gradual. I think China moved quite gradually in the region. They were very concerned about whether they, the newly independent countries, particularly Kazakhstan and Kyrgyzstan, um, would offer support to to Uyghurs um, who have very similar culture and uh, uh, and, and language, uh, um, and would start sort of um, reviving ideas of East Turkestan, which is uh, a banned notion in China, obviously. Uh, and I think that that continues to be part of a background that there is this. Um, implicit deal that the, the Central Asian countries don't offer too much explicit support for the Uyghurs in return, China provides investment in the region. Um, so I think there is this um, reversal of an artificial separation. And in a lot of ways, it's a, it's a natural trading relationship. You know, Central Asia sends um, raw materials, you know, coal, iron, ore, gas, oil to China, and China sends manufacturers back to to Central Asia, you see the bazaars are, are full, obviously full of Chinese goods. Um, important steps on that were the construction of the oil pipelines across um, Kazakhstan to China, um, gas pipeline from Turkmenistan through Uzbekistan to, to China. It's completed in 2009. So there are these, um, I mean, very strong economic links. I think the, the, the rationale behind the, um, the rail links that's developed between China and, and Europe also, you know, very strong economic rationale. The German car makers want to send their components to their factories in China. Um, Apple, HP want to send their electronics goods from um, from Chongqing and elsewhere to Europe. And for those kind of goods, rail makes a lot of sense, much faster than sea, cheaper than air. Um, so I think the economic forces behind this are quite strong. There's clearly also concerns about... Um, China's strategic political interests in the region, which I think are less clear. Um, uh, and I don't really, as an economist, I don't really have anything new to add to that. I mean, when we look at other powers in the region, and uh, the United States was the first power to really open up embassies in all the Central Asian countries. They've been there right from the start. Um, they've, the Central Asian countries have looked 
to the United States in many times. There's a, a counterbalance to, to Russia and China. Um, American interest clearly increased in the 2000s as a staging post for um, operations in Afghanistan. Um, but it, it, I think there's been a, a reluctance to be very involved on the part of the United States. This is not a, a region of a very high high priority. I think that has, has been you know very clear. There's um, you know, we we see Chinese presidents, Russian presidents frequently visiting the region. We don't see American presidents visiting the region, for example. Um, so, China, so the United States is is there, but it's a long way away. Um, the European Union, I think, has had problems engaging with, with Central Asia. Most of their resources went in the 1990s to the Traseca project of trying to create a, a transport link to Europe across the Caspian Sea, which I think was always pretty flawed in that a multimodal transport user train, they transport the things to a boat and back to a train, is it, never very competitive. Um, very, very recently, I, I think, um, oh, and then in the 2000s, the EU's a bit like the United States, EU's involvement was mainly about stopping drugs to get to Europe. There was a very um, specific reason for ha- having the programs in Central Asia, the Central Asia drug program, um, border management program, trying to strengthen the borders. Very big embarrassment for the, the EU was when the um, the weapons provided to the border guards were used in the in the Andijan massacre in Uzbekistan in two thousand and five. Um, so the, the EU has been looking for a Central Asia strategy, but again, as with um, the United States, I think it's just it's fairly low down on the priorities. You know, I mean, the enlargements in 2004, 2007, much more important than um, uh, than Central Asia. You know, Ukraine, much more important than Central Asia. Recently, there's the interest because of these um, transport links. Uh, that, and the transport links are very important. Um, yeah. Uh, that they, they, they've grown very rapidly uh, and they're visibly there as a, a link, a trading link that didn't happen before. Um, but really it's still Russia and China are the two dominant external forces in Central Asia. Yeah, and I'm glad that you've you've kind of emphasized um, kind of this idea of, of Central Asia as, as like a transportation link between China uh, and Europe, essentially. Um, and, you know, you have this section in your book where you, you kind of combat the idea that, that Central Asia is being held back because it's a, a landlocked region. And you want to, I, th- I think you're suggesting an alternative framework for thinking about the fact that actually Central Asia can operate as, as a link between uh, other important kind of commercial centers. Um, but I, I'm curious about, about the issue of, of borders in between the Central Asian countries, because one narrative that you kind of hear is that after the collapse of the Soviet Union, um, this was kind of detrimental to to Central Asia because the economies, which had once worked as part of a, a huge kind of continuous, you know, geographically continuous economic system, were suddenly split apart, and that this the kind of problem of of debating how trade and, and, and movement of people should happen across these borders kind of prevented these economies, basically slowed these economies to a halt, at least for some time. And I'm curious, um, ba- you know, I, maybe this came up in your research, I'm not sure, but but does this, how, how does China deal with like these border issues? Um, is this something that they have to kind of navigate? Like, you know, the, the, just to give an example, like the, the 
the Uzbek and Tajik border up until very recently was was closed, as far as I understand. So do you see this as an issue, um, kind of the border problem? Is it is it surmountable? And um, how does that kind of relate to this idea of, does, does, does that challenge this idea of, of Central Asia being either landlocked or landlinked or, um, yeah. Uh, yeah, it's a good question, Nick. Uh, and I think part of the reason why the um, the recession that lasted through the 1990s was so severe was the, the introduction of borders that hadn't existed before. In 1992, you drove between um, Kyrgyzstan and Kazakhstan. There were a couple of guys sat at a table playing cards, because that's all you saw at the border. Um, during the decade, you know, the whole panoply of sort of border fences and crossing points was built up. And as I mentioned earlier, that disrupted things like the, um, the, the fruit and vegetables trade for, for Uzbekistan. You can't be you know, sending these kind of products and have to wait two days to cross the border into Kazakhstan, then be stopped by police in Kazakhstan for fines, then two days to enter Russia. You know, it's, it just destroys that, that kind of, of trade. Um, Uzbekistan in particular, um, you know, when it first became independent, Uzbekistan had a slogan. It was the crossroads of Eurasia. Um, but they wouldn't let anybody transit the country. If you wanted to transit the country, if you were a Kyrgyz uh, producer trying to export to Iran or, or to Turkmenistan, you, know, you had to form a be part of a convoy. You had to wait till a convoy of trucks was formed and then you'd be escorted across Uzbekistan. Um, these things have, have gradually changed. Um, I think big, big changes are that now if you go to, you know, if you're for Kyrgyzstan, that's quite a while you didn't need a visa. Kazakhstan removed a visa a couple of years ago. Last year, Uzbekistan removed visas. This is for you know, for short-term visits, not, you know, 90-day visits. These are really, really big changes. Um, it's, it's really obvious that the, the border has, has moved from being to keep people out, to uh, keep goods out, and so on, to you know, more like an, uh, what we would think of as a normal risk assessment kind of border. You, know, you want goods and people to pass through the border. Obviously, you have some risk assessment of who the people are and what kind of goods they are. But that, that has been a, a really big change very recently. And that, that's partly why the, the change of reg, regime in, um, in Uzbekistan is so important. Right? Really, the country has opened itself up from being very closed. Um, and so, um, you know, I, I guess the one thing that related to this that strikes me about your book is, is actually the title um, and just to reiterate, you call that uh, paving the—is it paving paving a new Silk Road? And so I was wondering if you could just elaborate a little bit on on uh, what you mean by the new Silk Road. Is this is this just kind of shorthand for for Central Asian or sorry Chinese investment in Central Asia, or or is it, do you see it as some kind of like is is there a bigger picture here that's not just China focus, um, but maybe some some strategy on the part of the Central Asian countries themselves? Um, I think it's not just China focused. I mean, China is very important and China sees this as, as a big part of China's Belt and Road Initiative. I mean, remember that the, this was, the whole BRI was first announced in Kazakhstan in a, a speech by President Xi in, in Astana in 2013. He announced the Silk Road Economic Belt. So, you know, China is a big part in that China promises money for infrastructure investment. Um, but it's it's not just China. I mean, Kazakhstan has the Knowledge Oil Program, which has put, I think, $9 billion into improving you know, rail and road transport. You're mentioning uh, 
Uzbekistan. Uzbekistan has improved the rail links. Um, so there's a lot of things gone on um, that individually may not sound very much, but together they've created, I think, a really viable, particularly a rail network, but improved um, road network. I mean, and the main road from Uzbekistan through Kazakhstan to, to, to Russia um, through, through Nukas, you know, in 2007, I traveled that road. It, it was awful. You know, it was just a, a dirt track across the desert. It was called the E40. So it was a major Eurasian road. Yeah, now it's a, a paved road. So it's been all these um, improvements in the hard infrastructure, individually, maybe not so important, but together they have created. And it's not just the headline is the, you know, the, these um, daily trains that go now from Chongqing to Duisburg, the um, trains between China and, um, uh, and Europe. But also there's improved services, improved rail connections to Iran, which is a little bit problematic for the United States, but it's a natural trading partner for, for the Central Asian countries. Um, there's been improvements in the, the Karakoram Highway to make a link through Kashgar in China down to, to Pakistan. Um, you know, so all of these things are changing. More important even than the improvement in the roads and the railways, though, is the soft infrastructure. It's just that we talked about a few minutes ago improving the ease with which you go through borders, you know, reducing the red tape. Yeah. Um, these are, are really, really important um, for facilitating trade. And so when I talk about paving a new Silk Road, I mean, the Silk Road analogy is a, a little bit hackneyed, but I think it, it is sort of a, an opportunity to take advantage now of a central location. And when it comes to the landlocked issue this was used in, as an excuse for 20 years we're landlocked landlocked countries don't do well you know look at chad look at um, bolivia but landlocked countries can do really well if they've got good neighbors and good infrastructure look at switzerland look at austria um so i think the landlockedness is it's a geographic feature but it's not a an insurmountable obstacle and i think there has been the, these changes the changes in precedence in um in Uzbekistan in particular, but also in, in Kazakhstan, yeah, um, I think provide an opportunity for moving forward and getting rid of some of the, the old um, measures that, um, that restricted trade. So Uzbekistan, a big issue was the control of the currency. You know, it's, you're not going to engage in trade if you, you, when you get your foreign currency, you're just going to give it to the government at a terrible exchange rate. Um, so all of these things are, are reducing the costs of international trade they're allowing the countries to benefit more from specialising in goods and services which they can produce efficiently. And a way of reintegrating into the global economy on a political level that will reduce um, the influence to some extent of our big neighbours. So I think that fits with the multi-vector diplomacy. Um, so we're on the eve of, a, of a, I think, a big opportunity for the region. That's the paving a new Silk Road. Yeah. It's not clear that they would necessarily take it. I mentioned earlier, some of the people who became rich in the in previous decades, they maybe are not going to be so keen on change. They like things as they are and they're powerful. So I think we'll see in the 2020s um, which of these visions actually um, comes to pass in Central Asia. I think it's a very exciting time, though. Yeah, and speaking of that, I was wondering if we can talk... I, I don't think you get too much of, into this in your books because these are very recent 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 uh changes but especially in kazakhstan and uzbekistan i mean we really see especially in in, in uzbekistan we see some major changes happening in the governments um with nazarbayev stepping down in kazakhstan and then 
obviously uh, with with um, the death of the former president Karimov in uh, Uzbekistan, who's now been replaced by Mirziyoyev, who at least nominally is presenting himself as kind of a reformer. And I'm just curious, like, especially with Uzbekistan, like how, you know, it, it's, it seems to me um, that they're really pushing or they're really trying to um, redevelop relations with the European Union, with the United States, um, to try and attract um, investment into Uzbekistan, you know, um, they talk about big, uh, companies like, uh, that produce agricultural machinery, opening up factories in Uzbekistan, for instance. Um, so the question I kind of want to ask, because, you know, I'm, I'm kind of seeing this through the news is like, is, is this invest, is this strategy of trying to, uh, attract investment working um, is it too early to tell? Um, I, I guess I'm, I'm just asking for a more general assessment of of these proposed changes by Mirzioyev and, and how those are being perceived by by uh, the international, um, you know, international community, but also, I guess, like uh, global markets. Yeah, thanks. That's a good question. I mean, in terms of my book, you know, it comes out in 2019. It's mostly written in, in 2017. Yeah, but there's always a delay with academic publications. You know, they, the people read it, they give comments, you revise, you get it, you, you try to improve it, you want it to have a reasonable shelf life. Uh, so these events, I mean, Karimov died in uh, what, September 2016, and Ms. Yoyev um, was elected president later in the year. So they're really not covered in my book, and yet I think they do represent a quite an important turning point, particularly Uzbekistan. I mean, Uzbekistan is the most populous of the Central Asian countries. It's the only one that borders on all the on the other four countries, uh, and it clearly is a, um, a crossroads. I mean, Tashkent was, was the center of Central Asia in the Tsarist times, in the Soviet times. It's the biggest, you know, say whatever fourth biggest city in the in the Soviet Union. Um, yeah, it it, ha- it is central to to the region, and it's for me it's quite interesting to see. And Mizoyev was Karimov's prime minister for since two thousand and three. It wasn't an obvious uh, major reformer, so we're, we're kind of still waiting, I think, to see a bit what's happened. He did a, in the, his first full year in power. He did the um, the currency reforms, which were hugely popular because the currency restrictions were a pain in the neck. You know, you were carrying you know bags full of, full of small denominated um, notes to buy a cup of coffee in the early two thousands. Um, so that that was very popular. It was a, a pretty easy shot. Um, Opening up the visa requirements—that's another, um, I think, a, a good early shot. Some of the other things he's done, you know, tax reforms, reforms of regulations. These are harder to assess because we can't expect there to be overnight reaction. You know, you're a firm going to make a, a big investment in Uzbekistan. You want to be sure that these things are are really in place. That yeah, you know, that some of it, the corruption has been reduced. That the ease of getting construction permits. You know, the ease of um, repatriating your profits and so on, that these really have been reforms that are, are in place and are going to apply. So I think the signs are good, but it's this old um, thing. It's a bit too early to tell just exactly um, how good they are or how how, um, how, how firmly established the, the, reform, the reforms are. Um, Mirza Yoyev has clearly strengthened his personal position, um, which 
tells us there's not going to be, I think, political reforms anytime soon. Um, but whether the economic reforms will encourage you know, further investment. There's always been some foreign investment, but fairly quiet. You know, Newmont in the gold mines. You know, GM had a big factory um, that they inherited from Daewoo. Um, but you know, whether we'll get more transparent um, investment to develop some areas that um, you know, the capital or technology is lacking in Uzbekistan, um, I'm not sure. I mean, there clearly is um, cautious enthusiasm if you talk to people in Tashkent that this is a a, a new a new a new start. Um, so I'm quite optimistic, um, but you know, with a bit of a wait and see. Kazakhstan is harder because it's more recent. I mean, it's, uh, we're just going to about a year since um, Nazarbayev um, resigned as president, and it, it's really clear that he's still exerting the power behind the throne. Um, you know, he's asserted the, uh, his own right as um, leader of a nation to appoint most of the, the senior positions in the cabinet, which is a um, yeah, fairly embarrassing restriction on Tokayev's independence to be have, have it in public. Um, and some of those moves... It's not clear, is it, uh, that Nazarbayev really sees a need to protect his legacy or is he just protecting the interests of his, his family and other members of the elite who, do, who don't, don't want change? So I think we're, we're potentially, because these are the two dominant countries in the region, I think we're potentially on the, the eve of um, some big change in the region. Um, but, you know, it's not 100% sure. <laughs> Yeah, that's a good uh, lead-in to my next question, actually. Because, and, and, and this kind of echoes something that I think you alluded to earlier in the interview, um, and I, I did plan to come back to, is is thinking more broadly about uh, these five republics. You know, I think in the 1990s, um, like, or I guess in the last 30 years, it's made sense to talk about these republics, um, kind of look at them as you've done, side by side and kind of compare their trajectories. But it seems like eventually we're kind of reaching a point where they've developed in, in such different ways and had different experiences, especially if you think about Turkmenistan and Tajikistan. Um, I'm curious if we can begin to, to, I mean, are we moving past the legacy of the Soviet, of the late Soviet period? Um, are there still some kind of commonalities that we can see between these countries moving forward? Um, or as you said, are we at a point where we need to write five different books uh, about, about the region or think about um, comparisons that can be made beyond the region? I'm not sure. I'm just trying to think about where kind of Central Asian scholars can be moving forward as we think about the trajectories of these countries. And I think that has kind of broader implications, not just for economists, but, but you know, people doing different kinds of work in, in, in the region on contemporary uh, issues. Yeah, a good question, Nick. I mean, I, I mean this is a, a glass is half full or is it half empty in terms of, you know, do we look at individual countries, do we look at the region? Um, yeah, there, there clearly are still some... Um, regional similarities just as a matter of geography culture history um you know languages are similar islam is the dominant religion and so on um but they they have differentiated a lot i think the soviet heritage is something that has to be borne in mind it's, it's still there but we now have all of the initial presidents have gone 
you know, we now have a new generation of leaders. These are a new generation of leaders whose most of the original presidents, obviously, you know, they were there were people coming out of the Gorbachev area, appointed by Gorbachev. Um, the whole life had been in the Soviet system. The current leaders, all of them now, all the presidents, most of their adult life was post-Soviet Union. And I think that makes a huge difference. You know, these are also countries with a relatively young demography. Um, you know, people who were, say, under 40, you know, they were 10. People who look forward were 10 when the Soviet Union collapsed. So that memory is, is disappearing. It's taken for granted the... Um, the caution with market-based solutions that um, we saw was very clear in the 1990s is not there anymore. There's a, a more sensible discussion, I think, of the, the benefits and the costs of, a, of market mechanisms when you want government intervention, rather than um, one of the problems I had as an advisor in 1993 when we talked about hyperinflation that was in the several thousand percent. Most of the, many of the older governments said it's because of privatization. Monopolies cause um, inflation because they put up the price. You know, Complete lack of understanding that it was anything to do with um, fiscal and monetary policy. That's completely changed. So, I mean, the attitudes have changed. Um, you know, we cannot for, forget the, the past, but to talk about these as former Soviet republics, I think, starts to get in the realm of, you know, talking uh, about um, you know, Massachusetts as a former British republic and colony. You know, um, you know that, that has, has really, really changed. So, I think we, we do have to think of the, the countries separately, um, but the fortunes are interconnected, and that's part of the point of this paving a new Silk Road. And in fact, there were always many Silk Roads, and one of the questions I think that, that will be faced is which of these um, rail and road connections become important? Kazakhstan has embraced its position, I mean, and it's economically very valuable. They they they, revoke, they Transit fees are, are, are very large. Um, China, I think, is concerned. China doesn't want to be dependent on any single route route between um, China and Europe. So they're promoting the, this rail link from Kashi through the Kyrgyz Republic to to Uzbekistan, which would be a southern route that would go to to Tehran and ultimately on to, to Istanbul and Europe. Now, whether the Kyrgyz Republic accept this and has the railway built we have concerns about debt dependence if they take a loan to build the railway and so on, would determine whether the Kyrgyz Republic is part of this network or whether they will be excluded I mean the, the signs we see at the moment the Kyrgyz Republic has always been very open um, Tajikistan is probably not going to be part of this even though you know, air and road and rail links to Uzbekistan have improved you know, Tajikistan doesn't look like it will be on these kind of uh, you know, long distance networks. Turkmenistan is kind of um, not sure. The the rail link from that was opened in 2014 from Kazakhstan to uh, Iran along the the Baltic coast is quite important in bringing Turkmenistan into these networks. Yeah. But Turkmenistan remains a, a very regulated e- economy, um, not the easiest of borders to cross when you enter and leave Turkmenistan. So I think there are questions of. If we're going to create a region that's, that remains integrated, uh, but national states with different systems, which of these countries will be part of the integrated region and which might you know, run the risk of um, degenerating into little backwaters run by a president, presidential family or a president? Um, so I think those questions are still very much to be answered. Who will? Everyone talks about the, the desirability of um, 
being involved in the global economy, promoting exports, you know, who will actually do it? I think still remains uh, to be asked about the smaller countries. Yeah, I think it means that actually it, it's quite an interesting time, at least to, to be observing how these things are changing. Um, and, and I think your work definitely reflects that. Um, so, Richard, I think we're nearing the end of the time here, but I, as kind of custom, I wanted to ask if there are any uh, potential projects that you're thinking about or maybe that you're already working on, um, something that we can kind of look out, look, look at, uh, look forward to in the future. Um, I'm, Nick, I'm primarily working on the things I've been talking about, by the way, I talk about them, isn't it? Uh, th- these links between China and Europe, China and Iran, um, what are the implications for for Central Asia, but also for the broader Eurasian economy. Um, This whole question is, is Central Asia uh, the crossroads of Eurasia, or is it the hole in the middle of a donut, which is essentially its position from from around 1500, where it it became part missing since East Asia and Europe and and the Russian Empire got um, all separated out. Um, So I'm very interested in, in these international connections and how they're going to affect Central Asia. I'm very interested in the development of the two large countries under the the new presidents. I continue to be very interested in, in Kyrgyzstan, which is the only one of these countries that has really gone anywhere towards establishing a, a parliamentary democracy that limits the power of the president. They've, um, they've overthrown a couple of presidents. They've had the only female president in Central Asia. Um, I think there's a lot that um, that they have positive things about the Kyrgyzstan, but it's a resource poor country, and the economically it's, it's not done so great. So see um, what happens there. So still in the individual countries, some I mean it's very hard I find to work on Turkmenistan or Tajikistan. It's just hard to to access to to do things. So that affects a little bit one one's research and hopefully doesn't color one's opinion. Great. We'll look forward to, uh, well, hopefully we can have you back on the show. And Richard, I want to thank you again uh, for agreeing to, to do the interview. I think um, our, re- our, our listeners will find it very um, interesting. And, and, and for the listeners, uh, if you want to learn more about um, uh, Central Asian economies in the 21st century, you can check out, uh, once again, uh, Richard Pomfret's new book. It's called the Central Asian Economies in the 21st Century, Paving a, a New Silk Road, published by Princeton University Press in 2019. And Richard, thanks again for, for coming on the show. Thank you, Nick. It's great to talk to you.